It's Fangirl Chat with Teresa Delgado and Trisha Barr. Welcome, everyone, to this latest edition of Fangirl Chat. With me is my co-host for this episode, Kay. Hello. Kay, welcome. I'm so glad you could join us. And we have a special guest today. We have Tish Paul here. She is a Star Wars fan and also an author. And we'll have a story coming out in the next Athena's Daughters 2. So we were so excited to have her on. Welcome, Tish. Thank you. And welcome and hello to you both. So nice to meet you, at least over a podcast. It is. Tish and I got to talk on the phone just real quickly because I wanted to, you know, hear some of what she had experienced so I could see how to fit it into Vangirl Bog and to introduce these great authors that are coming out with Athena's Daughters too. And I was part of Athena's Daughters, the first one. And so, and then she started telling me these stories and I was making the connections because sometimes you read about people and you don't necessarily make the connection of who they are, but I've actually read about you on StarWars.com article at one point. So just tell us how you got into Star Wars. Oh, gosh. You know, a long, long time ago in not a galaxy far, far away, but in California uh, in 1977, all of my girlfriends at the barn where I rode. So yes, Trisha, like you, I have horses in my background. Everyone was talking about who was going to get Leia. That was the, the <laughs> big topic of conversation. I'm like, what? I drove my, yes, I was old enough to drive. I drove my mother's old beat up green Ford station wagon to what was then called the Big Edwards Theater uh, in uh, Newport Center in Newport Beach, California, and saw Star Wars for the first time in 1977 um, on the big, big screen. And from the moment when the Tantive and then the Star Destroyer come overhead and it had this fabulous sound system. So the whole theater just shook as, you know, the, the blasters are going and the ships are going overhead and, you know, everything is rumbling. And I was just transfixed from that moment onward. So, and I have been a Star Wars fan ever since. So it was talk about the great shipper, the first Star Wars ship. <laughs> oh, debate. God, yes. I mean, I'm afraid it was um, shipping that got me into it. But I, and I know that I was obsessively focused upon that. You know, I mean, I was 16 at the time. So it, it's um, forgivable, I suppose. Um, but it was so much more than that. Um, I, I loved the storytelling. I loved the, the myth arc. I loved the world building, all of the gaps, the, the assumptions, the way that things were not filled in. Uh, you know, I mean, what the heck is, you know, the spice mines of Kessel? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's just a classic example. Uh, you know, I mean, it drops us into this world and then just lets you play in it. I mean, it was just a, a marvelous creation. So I saw it several times in the theater and then fell in with a group of Star Wars fans in college. And so we all eagerly awaited Empire Strikes Back and had these extremely convoluted theories about who the other hope was. Mm-hmm. Um, I distinctly remember one about Boba Fett. It was just bizarre. <laughs> but, you know, they were kind of fed heads. And then in my senior year uh, of college, we 
managed to get an overnight view or a, a midnight viewing of Return of the Jedi at the uh, old Esquire Theater in Chicago. So it was just, it was fabulous. From beginning to end, it was a great ride. We know so much now about Star Wars, the, just the in-media rest of being dropped into it in that first moment where your brain's already starting to fire off and cook and wonder what's happening, what's going on, and all these little, you know, the knights and Jedi knights, what are they, and clone wars, and what was that? You served my father in the clone wars. I mean, what does that mean? (laughs) Um, You know, but you don't care. It's like, you know, you want to run on to the next thing. It was, it was just, it was fabulous, you know, and um, when Phantom Menace came out, I mean, I was so excited about that. I mean, so much so that I um, knew which theaters were showing the trailer, and I paid to an admit a matinee admission um, at the Uptown Theater in Washington D.C. to go in before Meet Joe Black, and mm-hmm. I watched that trailer at least three or four times. Uh, you know, because this is you know this is before everything was online and you know bootlegs and you know YouTube. You know, I mean, th- these were the olden days. And you know, at that point, I was deeply into Star Wars fandom, which I didn't really even know existed until 1994. Up until then, I had thought it was just me and my girlfriend Nitris, who had walked through the whole Star Wars experience with me in college, and then once. Heir to the Empire came out, um, we started sharing that back and forth um, once I got over my guilt about, you know, reading Star Wars because I thought, you know, only nerdy teenagers were into Star Wars. Um, I didn't know that there was this whole adult community until um, sometime later. How did you meet this adult community? Well, you know, I would have to say that first it started with the fact that I was, you know, I'm an attorney in Washington, and in those days there was a a B. Dalton above um, my law firm. And I would go down there on my lunch hour, and one day I'm sort of perusing the the stacks for, you know, adult-appropriated, you know, appropriate material, you know, the latest bestsellers and, you know, whatnot. And I saw this this cheesy cover for Heir to the Empire by Tim Zahn, and like, Star Wars? I had no idea that there was anything Star Wars out there. So I took the book, and I, I went down to the basement level of the bookstore, and I sat in a corner, and I read it over my lunch hour. Um, And then I hid the book and I went back the next couple of days because it was too embarrassing to buy the book. I mean, I I treated it like, you know, something like a dirty magazine or something because, you know, grownups didn't do Star Wars. You know, I had this joke about hiding fandom in the underwear door since 1977. And I and I was I mean, I was deeply in the closet, Um, but I kept going back over and over. So I finally bought the book. I paid cash for it because I didn't want a credit you know, transaction history of my purchase of this Star Wars book. Um, I, I know it just sounds bizarre, but this is how it was. And I took the uh, the cover off of it and I double wrapped it. And then I, you know, hid it in my briefcase and I took it upstairs um, to my office and then, you know, kept sneaking reads at it. So then that came out and then Dark Force Rising came out. And at that point I was sharing it with Nitris and we thought we were the only two adult Star Wars fans in the entire universe. Um, and then I went to Romania and Nitris, being the great friend that she is, sent me The Last Command by Diplomatic Bag. <laughs> <laughs> so I got it at the U.S. Embassy in Bucharest uh, by Diplomatic Bag and read it on the way home. Um, and then at some point in about ni- late 1993, early 1994, I got online. And I blundered into um, the AOL Star Ladies and the Who Luke Should Marry forum. 
uh, where the battle was raging between Mara Jade and Callista, whatever the last name is. <laughs> oh and, you know, and that was where I met all of these other people. And I discovered, you know, things like micro machines. That was something PG Law 3 taught me. And I discovered this thing called fanfic. And I found Rassum, uh, which is the Recart Star Wars board. And it, it's been a, a wild ride ever since. So I have to say this idea that girls are not Star Wars fans is just absurd to me because I've been there from the very beginning with, with my, my girlfriends. And something else that I discovered when I was um, prepping for this is that um, – Back in the days before, you know, posting fanfic online, there were all of these fanzines. And one of the original star ladies was a woman named Ming who collected fanzines. She acquired the fanzine archive from Lucasfilm and then collected some 30,000 fanzines, first Star Wars and then others. And um, then eventually when uh, she was in failing health, she was she was quite a bit older, um, archive of our, of our own, um, and the organization for transformative works arranged for the transfer of this archive of rich fan material to the university of Iowa. And so that's where this immense archive of star Wars fan related material and other fandoms as well is now archived forever, which is pretty exciting, but yeah, you know, women have been there from the very beginning and that's how I found them. I didn't know that part when I had done, I've started, uh, you know, like I did an oral history with Maggie Nowakowska, who was at Geek Girl Con on the, what was the name of that panel, Kay? Um, it was something about Geek Elders. Geek Elders, which is like <laughs> filled, packed, and these women were telling stories about, you know, being original, you know, Star Wars fans. And there were there was an article in a fanzine that essentially proposed that, like where were the the male fans at the beginning yes. because so many female fans had jumped over from apparently Star Trek. Yeah, there was I think that that's where they came from in the 70s because Trek had this long history already in the fanzine culture. You know, but the fanzines have always been predominantly female. You know, I mean there there's the, you know, occasional guy, but it's it's primarily a female run medium. And so yeah, a lot of them came from there. And so and Ming when I met her was probably in her 60s, you know, she had been active in a, a science fiction fantasy group uh, in Santa Barbara, California for years um, and just gravitated to these zines. So, you know, it was, uh, they've been there all along. So this idea that Star Wars is only for dudes, is only for guys, I just, I've never get. And goodness, you know, um, my niece, uh, who I recently spent some time with over the holidays, uh, when she was in first grade, she got a lot of trouble from the boys in her class saying, Star Wars is only for boys. Uh, her mother was able to go and say, sorry, but Mac's aunt writes for Star Wars. So she <laughs> knows more about what an A-wing is versus an X-wing than you do. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Yeah. I I love it. I love it. Well, Kay, that's where Kay and I met in, you know, the TFN message boards mm-hmm. back in the fanfic days. And it's always funny because when people kind of get after, you know, like, oh, these, you know, when they talk about team, uh, you know, team Edward and, you know, all these different things for Twilight. And I'm sort of like, you know, that's just everybody goes through that phase and it's okay to want to root for somebody to to be together if that's how kids I mean these kids are reading and they're writing and they're creating their own stories and what 
the first I had been writing stories in my head since I was little. I had crossovers between Lord of the Rings and Star Wars in my they were all in my head. And then I found fanfic boards and I was like, wait a minute, people write this mm-hmm. stuff down. People really do this and they post it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it's funny to go back to those days because there were the zines. And in fact, um, in about 1978, Lucasfilm asked that all of the Star Wars zines be submitted to them first or at time of publication. I'm not quite sure how that worked. So, in fact, Lucasfilm held this archive until Ming got it from them. So, Mm. you know, the idea that the content owner would be so involved in fan derivative work from the very beginning is is so strange to think of now. But that was how it started. Uh, But then once it all came online, you know, in the early 90s, you know, we saw X-Files 1013 and Paramount being pretty heavy-handed with the fan communities, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty about how the content owners, specifically 20th Century Fox and Lucasfilm, would treat fan derivative work. I mean, we all knew that it was qualitatively different to put something on the Internet, whether it was, you know, a a screen grab or... um, you know, a, a, a picture or art or original, or, you know, or, or derivative fic. We all knew that it was different to put it on the internet because everybody could get it. Whereas with a zine, that was, you know, by its nature of a much more limited dissemination. And we all kind of waited to see what would happen. And, uh, you know, my, my theory is, is that the fans were just so far ahead of the content owners that they didn't realize what was happening until, you know, to, to borrow the analogy, the horse was already out the barn uh, running down the road and in the next county. You, now you see, like, Disney will retumble fan art. Mm-hmm. I know. Um, it's interesting, too, when they're pinning people's articles about the parks. and When, yep. when I think about how, how we lived in terror of those of you know the the cease and desist order and so forth i i mean we were terrified of it because all the fans knew that this was different so it was all we were always really surprised to eventually find out that um i I think that by the time they finally realized what was going on it was too late um that's my best guess (laughs) there was an interesting discussion they had um ryan johnson was on a grantland podcast it's the the two feet female um, podcasters they have their show and they asked him if he had ever engaged in fanfic and he said well I, I, I don't think so he says I, I you know he, he was sort of hesitant to ask but you know they just kept talking like you know their friends do it and you know it was nothing abnormal to them and as they kept talking about different things he did and he was into these um, write your own adventure games <laughs> and then he, he start he told he said well I sat in my basement for I remember he said and and kind of coded this write your own adventure and they looked at him and they grinned and they said well you've written a fanfic then ding 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 nope. and it, did, it didn't even occur to him um, another thing if you think about it like Jason Fry wrote the essential guide to warfare and mm-hmm. he was contracted to write a certain amount of words but he wrote way more than he was contracted to and they didn't put it in the book it was nonfiction, but they were actually doing point of views mm-hmm. so they were creating fiction and then they posted them on StarWars.com. Well, he was writing those because he wanted to, not because he was getting paid. He had a word count. So 
everything past that is him doing it because he's a fan. Some people say it in a very derogatory way. In fact, I was just seeing someone commenting on um, Peter Jackson's The Hobbit and that it's just fanfic. And, you know, and my response to that is, is that, well, any derivative work, and that's why I sort of prefer that term, if it's not from the original creator, it's derivative. And mm-hmm. granted, some of it might be under license and some of it isn't, but it's all derivative work written by someone who loves the sandbox that they're playing in. Exactly. I've been amazed of the number of professional artists who have popped out fan art just based on the teaser trailer for The Force mm-hmm. Awakens. We've seen so much of it. And really, it's just them because they're fans. They're like, oh, this is really cool. It's inspiring me to create a piece of art. And I'm like, this is awesome. I love I love seeing that. Oh, the fan art is just fabulous. I love it and I can't wait to see more. Although I'm, I'm in kind of uh, dicey territory there because um, I, I'm not a spoiler phobe, but I'm trying ah. to avoid being completely spoiled. Me so, too. you know, things will pop up on my Twitter feed. And I'm like, oh, I don't think I'm going to click on that. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I'm not sure by the time it comes around, I'll probably be thoroughly spoiled. But I I was unspoiled enough to have been really surprised by things in that trailer. Uh, and boy, that was that was a fun trailer. It was really, really fun. Uh, and I love sharing it with my nieces over the holidays. You know, look, that's, look. What, that's what I did. I was like, look, watch this yeah. to my nephews. Look my at Ray. Nieces. Look at Ray. Isn't she awesome? <laughs> and they're like, wow, she looks like Princess Leia. <laughs> yeah, she and does, a, doesn't she? And a little like Padme, and too. And a little like Padme. There was this great article on stars.com about this is a, your star ladies convention mm-hmm. back in this is 1998 yes and eventually star ladies all became part now you're all considered part club jade is where yeah, that all folded into it, it used to be sort of club jade and the star ladies because club jade started on rassum and but there was a, a huge cross-pollination between Star Ladies, which was on AOL, and Club Jade, which started on Rassum, because in part, two of the people who formed Club Jade were in AOL Star Ladies, Jedi Twin 1 and Jedi Twin 2, and eventually the Star Ladies fell out, Um, and then the other part of it was the wild cards, because at our very first convention, which I'm going to say was 1997, um, because we were in Las Vegas, to watch... um, the, was that the release of the special editions? I think that was 97. Yeah. 97. yeah. yeah. Um, so we all went to Vegas, and that was when our T-shirts still had all three names, or started to have all three names, AOL, Star Ladies, Club Jade, and then the wild cards were the guys because they didn't want to be the Star Ladies. Um, <laughs> so they became the wild cards, and eventually it became Club Jade and um, the wild cards, and the Star Ladies sort of fell out. But So this this convention didn't just have you know, the, the Star Ladies Club Jade and the Wild Cards, you had, well, and I think maybe they considered themselves part of your group. Uh, you had Timothy Zahn and yeah. Michael Stackpole were there yeah. and Steve Sansweet. And Steve Sansweet and um, Ann Crispin came for um, a lunch, too, which was really nice. And, of course, she she and Aaron both died this past year. So, yeah, um, Steve Sansweet came and uh, conducted a focus group. Uh, and asked questions about what uh, women fans wanted to see out of uh, the Star Wars franchise. Uh, and one of the uh, sort of original members, PG Law 3, had mentioned that, you know, she really wanted, you know, to have, you know, a Star Wars, like a desk planner that she could put on 
the conference table and that it looked professional, but it was Star Wars. And, you know, she's really delighted to say, you know, almost 20 years later that she now finally has that. Um, <laughs> but Steve also, you know, asked questions about, uh, you know, things like representation. And we talked a lot about how important it was to see women other than Leia. Um, and I would like to think that that focus group eventually got people thinking about the better representation that we did see in uh, Phantom Menace. I mean, I'm not sure if it was responsible or if they were related, but certainly by the time Phantom Menace came out, you know, we did see women in the Naboo fighter corps. Um, you know, Padme had her handmaidens. Um, there, there were just a lot more women and, you know, a few more people of color, too. So it was definitely a step in the right direction. Um, and as for Tim and Mike, um, they came in through a, a sort of circuitous route. And um, I was probably at least partially responsible for Tim coming in. And then he brought in Mike. So, uh, I, you know, I have to say that to the extent that there's uh, any responsibility for good or ill, I certainly played a part in that. Do, do you feel that... Do you feel that being able to talk to the authors, being able to, you know, sit down and just kind of mingle with them in that type of situation, that did it help you as a fan? Do you think they were listening? That Do you think there were conversations that they, you know, saw things through your eyes as, as fans? That You know, I think I would probably maybe put it more the other way. Um, a part of it is, is that, you know, because when they came into our group, you know, most of us were already older and it was a predominantly female group. So, I mean, at the time I met them, I was, you know, in my, I guess, late thirties or early forties at that point. And, you know, other people too were, uh, I mean, we had a few people who were in, you know, high school, um, or in college, but an awful lot of other the women there were already professionals and um, or, you know, married and kids had been out on their own. It was just an older and more mature group. And so what that meant was that um, we laid down some really hard rules that people were in no way to make it awkward for our guests to never discuss your fan fiction, to never vent to them about something you didn't like, um, to recognize that they were writing under a contract that certainly included confidentiality provisions, and to never, ever make it uncomfortable or awkward for them, you know, to treat them as, as guests and friends and not as um, resources to be pumped. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, it, we, we tried to make it, a, a, in a way, a safe place, um, and that has continued to be, I think, one of the hallmarks of the group. Um, so they certainly listened and were engaged and were delighted to be with people who loved to, you know, who shared their same passion for the universe. But we were very careful to never... Um, you know, it's, the way that you describe it in Washington is you never want to say or do anything that could end up on the front page of the Washington Post. And we <laughs> never wanted them to have to be called before someone at their publisher or at Lucasfilm and say, what the heck were you doing? Um, we never wanted that. So, uh, you know, I would say that it, it was actually more of um, <laughs> I mean, sometimes we didn't talk about Star Wars that much, <laughs> I guess, which is perhaps not the answer you were expecting. But that was the culture of the group. It actually makes a lot of sense, but 
having met both Tim and and Aaron and talked to Mike mm-hmm. in you know doing an interview, they're all they've always been very accessible. And it yes. was interesting because yeah. they even were accessible. I mean, the first time I got to speak to Mike Sackpole was he was actually responding on you know some you know it was a, a constructive criticism piece mm-hmm. and you know he just it, it you know it kind of engaged in that dialogue and he was not defensive at all it was very much you know what what do you think uh, you know this is how I approached it which is always interesting because you see other storytellers like ones that I admire that I've seen at conventions or have been discussed with Josh Whedon or mm-hmm. Jane Espenson, and they actually have no problem because someone will say, well, this I don't understand. And it's amazing that every time that ever I've seen that happen, those creators always have, and they always know why they did something. Mm-hmm. And that was the same way with when I got to first time I ever got to talk to Mike. Um, that was, you know, just, it was so it was interesting yeah. to see, and they're so smart oh, yeah. Um, yeah. about understanding. That was my favorite thing for listening to them on any interviews they did on anything for Star Wars was how smart they were about storytelling. How much I learned about storytelling from them oh, about structure, characters. You know, just amazing what they could relate to as a teacher. Yeah, they are wonderful teachers, and uh, I had the, the privilege of a long time ago at, attending a um, a writer's workshop for Aaron, which is where uh, eventually the story that's in Athena's Daughters 2 came out. Um, and then when I was at Origins, um, I did a writer's workshop with Tim and Mike, and uh, yeah, I'm, I was terrified, you know, I mean, because these are people that, you know, I know personally, and I have known them for years, and I uh, did research for both of them, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm splattered all over a certain period of the Star Wars EU, you know, like a, like a murder scene, um, <laughs> and so, I, you know, I, I know them in all these different capacities, but uh, you know, to to sit in a workshop and write a 15-minute original fic for them was just terrifying. I mean, terrifying. And, you know, I, I almost snuck out. And the only <laughs> reason why I didn't was because I knew that I would be seeing them later. And they'd say, Tish, you know, what are you doing? Why did you run away, you coward? Um, you know, we've shown you our, you know, early work. Why are you being so stupid and shy now? Um, so I... Um, uh, so I stuck it out, and it it ended up going far better than I had ever any reason to hope. And you know, eventually submitting Crow Bait and Switch to uh, Silence in the Library Publishing is what is. I mean, that's that's what motivated me to do it. How did you make the jump from participating in the fan communities to the writing and the researching and all that? Um, well, going back to um, the '90s, uh, what happened is that um, I had gotten to know some of the gaming people through West End Games, specifically Pete Schweighofer, who ended up marrying, actually, another member of Club Jade. Um, and, you know, in one of these things that, you know, you're kind of young and dumb, and uh, I, I got to know Pete, and he created a character for me um, that I did some role-playing in and a couple of cons. And, you know, we all were, were waiting at that point for the release of the Hand of Thrawn duology, and so I... I made a bumper sticker that said Zahn in 97 and I gave it to Pete and I said, if you happen to see Mr. Zahn, 
you know, because at that point it was Mr. Zahn, uh, you know, go ahead and give him a couple because we've got extras. Um, and, you know, and then we just handed them out at our own little convention. I go to my first convention, which was Gen Con, and it must have been 96. Um, and I'm sitting in this panel, you know, you're with a couple of other club jaders and you know, we're sitting on, you know, on our hands so excited because we're going to see Tim Zahn for the first time. <laughs> it's so exciting. And in the middle of this panel, he says, is Tish Paul here? Thanks for the bumper sticker. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God, I just died. I did. I just died. Yeah, I mean, it was just complete hero worship. And so then afterwards, you know, we sit in the hall, as Tim does, and we talk about Star Wars and we talk about why we all think Mara Jade is just the best thing ever. Um, and then we met Mike because he was also at the con and, you know, and I saw my first Klingon for the first time. I saw my first, you know, Mulder and Scully cosplay. And at some point, Tim was working on finishing uh, the first book in the Hand of Thrawn duology, Spectre of the Past. And he had gotten his edits back and uh, they had some questions and some concerns and he didn't know where to go. I, I mean, it, it's, it's incredible to think that he didn't know where to go to find out what had been happening in the EU in the, the <laughs> Star Wars expanded universe. So he contacted Pete and said, I think Tish Paul might be able to help me. <laughs> and so then Tim contacted me and, you know, again, I just like, I practically died. Um, but, you know, he had a couple of questions like, you know, what the heck is Lando up to, which I knew because I had read the Corellian trilogy. And so I pulled out all of my Star Wars books that at that point had been hidden because, you know, I was still hiding yeah. it all. Um, so, you know, I had turned all the spines inward and I'd ripped off all the covers and my basement floor was littered with Star Wars books, just littered <laughs> with them. My husband comes down. And he's like, where did these all come from? <laughs> so I'm. I'm reading all of these secrets. books and saying, okay, so Lando's doing this, and this is the ship he's flying, and he's meeting this person named Tendra, and, you know, and this is the book where it's in on page whatever. And I sent it off. And he ended up using some of that, not using others of it. Um, and that was really where it started. Um, and so then I did more for Tim and then did some work for Mike, and I got to know Kathy Tires a little bit and a few others. And, you know, and that was really where it started because I knew Pete – Chris Cassidy and I started thinking, well, gosh, you know, there's this outlet through West End Games, which at that point had a short fiction license for gaming material. So Chris Cassidy and I, um, who were both in Club J, and that was where we met, wrote a couple of stories based upon characters that Pete Schweighoffer had created for the role-playing game. And we submitted them to West End, and then West End sort of lost the license and disappeared. Um, but Bantam Spectra ended up doing the anthologies. And so we ended up having two stories in one of the uh, anthologies, Hut and Seek and um, Simple Trick. Um, and then we did another story for Gamer. And then I kind of fell out of it um, for a while. But that was how it started, was through meeting Tim and, and talking writing and providing research material and then saying, okay, well, you know, maybe Chris and I could do some short stories. So we did. And so, you know, that's sort of where it started. I went and looked at your the stories Hut and Seek and Simple Tricks just went back through mm -hmm. Wikipedia because you and you realized that you had you had two female characters correct yep. in this story Fennig Nabon Na well, and uh, Gita Dogder and they they were having these adventures yeah yeah I, you and, know it's it's incredible to think now it's it was two middle aged women romping through space cheating, stealing, drinking, um, and getting into all kinds of, you know, 
irresponsible and criminal activity. I, I, <laughs> I read some summaries. I'm like, you know, I, re- I read everything so long ago that sometimes you just, yeah. some of this stuff you forget. And I'm like, so this is, you know, essentially, did they pass the Bechtel test before we were even talking about the Bechtel yes, test? They, they did, which is why Athena's Daughters 2 is, for me, such a natural um, outgrowth of that. You know, I mean, th- we... We were right. Yeah, I mean, granted, um, you know, the stories were they weren't self inserts. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing that, you know, people would accuse female authors of. But we were having a lot of fun writing them and we were writing them for our friends. Uh, We were writing the kinds of adventures that we liked reading. What was the name of their ship? Um, It was the Star Lady. Yes. Yeah, no, it was the Star Lady. This is what I mean. Some of it, I, I can't believe we got away with it. And I have to say that if I were to do it over again, there's some things I'd do differently, and that's probably one of them. But on the other hand, you know, it was it was 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, we, we both have developed in our craft since then. Uh, but they were fun. And oh, they were... I, I think, sir, there's so many... Things that I see people put their little nods in that oh, yeah. I think Star Lady's fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, you know, yeah. and the the Star Lady yeah. certainly enjoyed it, um, and Club Jade. So, but yes, I mean we wrote these Bechtel test passing stories involving women having adventures, and I mean why? And we did that twenty years ago. So why it would seem to be such a novel thing now? Mm-hmm is just lost on me. I don't understand it. Uh, but it's why it's so exciting to be a part of Athena's Daughters too. There were stories back when Kay and I were really into, you know, I know I would go to the bookstores for the New Jedi Order books mm-hmm. oh, yeah. to, like, to get, like, get them, like, the day they came out. I would ask the ladies to go in the back the day before, because <laughs> a week before, to get them, because I had to know. Yes, and um, Tuesday was release day. Yes, Tuesday is release day. So, but there were there were a lot of female characters back in those books that you know you talk about um, Winter and Ayala and Jaina and Mara. Uh, I loved writing about uh, Tahiri back in those yeah. books, and and then anything from the X Wing, you the, you know X Wing novels that you could just take all those female characters and they were just in their part of the mix. They weren't like in their Sometimes there were romances, but a lot that wasn't necessarily part of it. It was they were in there doing their job too. You know, so. Trisha and Kay, what um, I, when I think about this, uh, I I think about I think it's George Martin who has said this, but I find that it's true of the X Wing books and it's true of the the best of the Star Wars books that I've loved. You know, Tim's work and and some of the others, and that's that. You know, you don't necessarily need to set out to write female character. What you need to do is to set out to write great characters mm-hmm. and then to populate your canvas with characters of all sorts of, you know, of different races and sexes and genders and ages. And if you if there are lots of them there and if you, you write them first as characters without automatically defaulting to to one setting, but broadening it, you you not only broaden the appeal of the story, but from a storytelling standpoint, no single character, you know, if you only, if you have more than one woman, then the, um, no one female character needs to bear the entire narrative grunt <laughs> of yeah. all female expectations. Um, <laughs> like poor, like poor Leia ended up, yes, you know, and then Padme again, yes. when you think about it, when you talk about the fan, the Phantom Menace, other than 
you know, there were there were problems that people had with the fan menace that were existing fans. If you think about the movie as a whole, just the diversity and the number of impactful female characters. I mean, they were running around with, you know, the handmaidens were running around with guns. They were protecting, serving as uh, doubles for the queen, the leader. And then, you know, they were in starfighters and they were, you know, Jedi and all, all these different things. You think about just that movie, what could have happened with more female characters, you know, continuing down through the story. Um, Shmi is so, another one where you, yes. know, she's, you don't have to give her a gun to have her, you know, make the most of the of the screen time that she had. Very powerful character, but in a different way. And this is what I mean is that when you you've got more than one, you you've got more flexibility. Um, yeah. And so it it's just it's it's something that that bears thinking is that you know you need to set out to write great characters um but a part of that characterization is to to broaden it beyond just a single default i think uh Joss Whedon had said something too about how like you know make it a female character or make it weird that there's a female character in this group you just make it natural like that's just, mm-hmm. just the way it is and that's what i liked about the x-wing books that it doesn't feel like they shoved any type of character in there. It just feels like that's who that group is. Yeah, exactly. I I couldn't agree with that more. One of the interesting things when Aaron Alston, I had had the chance to do my little, you know, Savudu artwork where I got the, you know, the Jane and Jack first kiss for Valentine's done, which I went through. I had a litter of books to make sure I got all the costumes right when I described the artist and made, you know, said, you know, just went through the whole thing. But so I asked Aaron if he would talk to me about um, some of the, the female characters later on in a in a different article and I asked just a question could you answer the question for me and he was about Tyria Sarkatainer <laughs> say that five times fast <laughs> I asked him a simple question just if he could because she always you know she had trouble being a Jedi she struggled at that mm-hmm. but she was good at different things and but I always related to her because she was always trying and you know she didn't have to be the best in the at anything but she was always in there trying to fight the fight and he sent back literally like he it was like five or six typed word pages of the about her backstory what he thought about her none of this was ever going to make it out into anything it was just that he considered her as a whole kind of human being when he wrote her character so that all that sort of bled into just her being on a scene for in a page or with Kel being on the page, her husband later on. I miss Aaron so much. Yes. And so, you know, that type of um, just sort of, you know, you're talking about creating character. They're just human beings, mm-hmm. I guess, is how, you know, what they end up being. So it was really great to see that he, I think he had, his legacy will live on because I feel like he sort of helped mentor me just by giving me five pages of you know, his time. And, and then I got to interview him later on. That was my first hours insider interview, which by the way, just so the horse related version (laughs) of it was I got the email while I was riding my horse. Would you like to interview Aaron Alston? (laughs) And my horse is named Ganner after the, the, the Jedi uh, Ganner. And I almost fell off of Ganner. I was going to say, you know, I I remember the first time I got an email from Dunzon and I can just, I I understand that feeling really well. It's like, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And then Ganner, stop. Wait. (laughs) Yes. I'm going to end up in the dirt. (laughs) 
I, it was about to happen. There's a term for it. It's called the fangirl flail. Yeah. Um, yes. That's a hashtag now. <laughs> and it's funny because even guys, they get it. Like, they'll be like, I'm so excited. I want a fangirl flail. And I'm like, yeah, say it. Everybody can do it. It's just this Embrace sort of Janine Spenlove is how I um, ended up. Uh, she's one of the editors on Athena's Daughters, too. Was, she's a huge Star Wars fan, huge. too. She's a friend of Aaron's also. And Mike. And they had and this. Tim. And Mike, yes, and all of them. And they've done some anthologies with them. And I love anthologies because you just kind of get a taste of different things. And that's how I ended up knowing Janine and ended up getting to be one of the so it was one of the uh, stretch goals, which Athena's daughters, it was like, I was like, well, I, th- I think they'll get there. And it was like two days and they'd already made mm-hmm. my stretch goal. And then, you know, we had the crazy last day that got the Athena's daughters to be able to do the Athena's daughters too. Like that was such a crazy stretch goal. We were like, well, you know, I hope it happens. And we're sitting there watching the counter. <laughs> I mean, literally the dollar signs were going up in the last hour. It was like one of those incredible things. Like people were like, yeah, we want this to happen. <laughs> so, so exciting. I hope we, it, we get similar um, for Athena's daughters too. I think so. And so people who are just listening to this for Star Wars side, Athena's daughters, the intention was to write all um, these short stories, science fiction, fantasy, speculative fiction with a female protagonist. And then from there, there was no, you know, it could be a villain. It could be heroic. It could be whatever you wanted it to, to be. And there were these amazing stories. And then, you know, Athena's Daughters, too. So I we got to and the name of your story is let's make sure I get this right. Crow, Bait and Switch. Yes. And it is part of this, the Athena's Daughters, too. And I was reading it and just thought that it was so clever. You have a little crow and a border collie. I have a Sheltie. So, <laughs> so you understand what it's like to be managed by a, by a herding dog. I am managed all the time by my dog. Yes. You wouldn't believe how much I'm managed by her every day of my life. So, um, yes. So <laughs> I was reading this, like, wonderfully endearing um, story. And I, I, as soon as I read it, I knew, too, Kay was going to like that the crow talked about a certain movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she quotes Jurassic Park, <laughs> um, which is, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it's it, it's funny, and um, and I think that comes from the fact that you know there's this fanish interest in clever girl, who's the velociraptor that kills Muldoon mm-hmm. in the movie, and I I really I liked it for that reason, and that was what made me think of it. Uh, because of course birds are descendants of dinosaurs, and so the the crow in the story Morgana feels a a a genetic and personal link to the clever girl in the movie. There's also the the fact that the the film is dealing in in some sense with as Ian Malcolm says it at one point of the book or in the film that. You know, in you were so excited in whether or not you could, you never stopped to ask whether or not you should. <laughs> and that's one of the themes that runs through the story is that just because you can uplift these animals, and so they really aren't just dumb animals anymore, they are fully sentient creatures. You know, what are the moral implications of that? Um, so 
Jurassic Park provided a um, a nice segue to explore that particular theme. The first, just like the first couple paragraphs, I like I read it and then I realized there was a crow talking, and then I was like, wait, I need to go back and reread that. <laughs> and then one, but once I re- read that, I was like, this is really cool. This is different, and and I liked the Jurassic Park connection, but it was it was something even different from Jurassic Park. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, next gen in a way. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, when I, uh, after I attended the writer's workshop with Mike and Aaron, uh, or excuse me, with Mike and Tim, and and then attended the Aaron Alston memorials at Origins Con, I uh, talked to Janine about whether or not uh, it might make sense if I could submit a story. to Athena's Daughters too, and she encouraged me to do that. So I'm, I'm so grateful to her for, as well as Mike and Tim for kind of getting me over that fear and getting me to submit something. Um, but as I was coming back on the plane from Origins, I was thinking about how I would like to play with the ideas of you know um, of talking animals, talking fully sentient animals who are still animals, but mm-hmm. also um, you know fully fully sentient as well. And the concept that I'm most most familiar with is Uplift, uh, which is from David Brin's um, Startide series. It's an old science fiction series. And as I was coming back, I read an article on io9 that had mentioned Uplift within the context of the Dragon Riders of Pern, which is mm. Anne McCaffrey's old series. And I'd realized that, that they were describing the dragons as uplifted lizards. And I'd realized that Uplift had a more general term than just that it was it it meant something more than just what was in David Brin's books, and then the more you think about it, the more you realize how much science fiction literature is is filled with uplifted animals. You know, Planet mm-hmm. of the Apes and Island of Doctor Moreau, and um, mm-hmm. Tim explored that idea actually in one of his in his first Mara Jade story. Um, you know, the Mara Jade origin story um, that was in the West End Games anthology from way back. So it it has a, a a long and established history in science fiction, and I realized that that's how I could get to my uh, talking crows was that they were genetically uplifted. Um, so that that gave me the the handle I needed to be able to tell the story. It was, it's always neat, um, you know, when people well first you know sometimes it has to be their first experience in this science fiction or speculative fiction. It always has to have people have to have their inroads, but. It's always nice to know that there's existing, you know, tropes or ideas that themes that you can work on. And even you know, using Jurassic Park, which is such a widely known mm-hmm. story to create, um, you know, to create this kind of language in your own story and to even suggest themes. So I love the, the name Morgana, too, because... <laughs> <laughs> well, it just that that in and of itself lends sort of you know it tells you a lot about her. Stuff. Yes, it does. It, and, it's 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 very suggestive as to her character. Uh, you know, I had wanted it to be the story of the scientist Jess, and we've not really even talked about Jess at all. But in truth, once I started writing, Morgana really flew away with the story. She's <laughs> she's a compelling character. She is not a nice bird at all um she is manipulative and um clever very very clever like her clever forebear the velociraptor um and she has no problem with taking advantage of and you know even injuring um humans i mean she's got she's very much into her own self-interest um 
but I hadn't expected her to to fly away with the story as she did. That that ha- has happened to me on <laughs> a few occasions where I have had characters who are, and, and you know you talk about this and you think people are going to think I'm crazy, but I I've had a character who insisted that I was not writing the right thing, so she just wouldn't as I would say, speak to me for a while. <laughs> and um, I had another character who actually is a character in my short story in Athena's Daughters, uh, Gemini, and she's from my uh, my original novel. And she was supposed to just be, uh, you know, a friend to the main character, but she kept, ha- she kept telling her her story and kept telling me her story and kept telling her story. And I was realizing that, you know, this wasn't just, one character story that you have this epic story that she her story is just as important and and it's funny because people always like will say wow she's my favorite character she's right my now. favorite character <laughs> yeah I know there's a lot of people who re- who really like that character so it was fun to give her her own you know short story um but it's it's just interesting that characters will just sort of you know the crow ran away with it but maybe that was what it was always supposed to be in the first place I, she's um, she's a good vehicle for for telling the story, and now I have this uh, 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 this whole other set of I- ideas to explore. I haven't had time to do it yet, but you know maybe in something else. Um, we need to get we need to get Athena's daughters fully funded and meet all of our stretch goals. We are fully funded now to meet all of our stretch goals and to get it out there, and then I'll see where it goes from there. Are you excited for Jurassic World? Is- yes, I am. Um, you know, I, I particularly love the, I, I'm not sure if it's the Leo Pluridon or if it's the, or if it's a Mosasaur who leaps up to eat that great white shark carcass, which might be a Pluridon <laughs> Megalodon, I'm not sure. Uh, it's an awfully big great white shark. Um, but I, I just love that moment where that sea reptile comes up out of the water and just chomps down. I think that's just amazing. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> well, isn't that sort of the whole meta, too, of this uh, is bigger than Jaws? Yeah, 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 it really is. Yeah, it's, yeah. We're, we're, it's not just the, a bigger boat you're going to need. <laughs> exactly. I'm sort of like, wow, okay. Yeah, there's a, a uh, there was a, a series called um, Walking with Dinosaurs, and one um, part of it at the beginning is where you see this dinosaur, and I think it's an Acrocanthosaurus, leaning over a tide pool. And the voiceover by Kenneth Branagh is just that, you know, he's lying in wait, watching his prey, you know, and there's this, you know, Jaws-like music building up. And then suddenly behind the dinosaur, it's, it's a big, you know, sort of T-Rex type thing, although it's not a T-Rex, but this this giant sea monster that looks just like the one that's in the Jurassic World trailer, leaps up out of the water, grabs the dinosaur by its tail, this, this big <laughs> T-Rex thing, and pulls it under. Um, it's it, Because, in fact, a lot of these sea reptiles were bigger than the dinosaurs. I, I realize I've just exposed a, a, a certain um, interest of mine. Um, <laughs> so it's no wonder that there's a, a certain reflection upon dinosaurs and their uh, genetic forebears, birds, in bait and switch because i do love dinosaurs who doesn't like dinosaurs my son outgrew them but i haven't <laughs> oh well that's okay but he had fun with them oh, while yeah. he was right oh yeah absolutely and uh, so it's embarrassing when the little kids can tell you more species oh gosh. So dinosaurs you're like oh yeah okay what was that dinosaur and always correcting your pronunciation 
<laughs> Although it was fun because in addition to the nieces that I was spending time with over the holidays, and so we spent lots and lots of time talking about Star Wars and about uh, um, Harry Potter and about, oh, they were so interested in Athena's daughters. I mean, they all wanted to know how they could get their stories published. You know, and these are, you know, eight and ten-year-old girls. Um, and they also got their penny blossoms Um Ah. So yeah, so you know they they were covering the whole territory, but a bunch the two of the boys are really into dinosaurs too. So uh, I was able to then do the dinosaur thing too. Um, the girls were more into Star Wars. Well, they're smart young ladies. They are. They really are. And I have to say that um, Aunt Tish it does everything she can to foster these these interests. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I I admit I am. I'm like, hey, who wants to watch Rebels? <laughs> And Trisha. So. Oh, gosh. You know, I, I am not up to speed on or up to date on Rebels because I've been out of it for a little while. So no spoilers. But oh, I, wants- I am so enjoying Hera and Sabine. I mean, I, I like um, the other characters, too, but I, I love Hera and Sabine and my nieces love Hera and Sabine. So that's that's been nice to talk about them. You know, I mean, I know that some people aren't crazy about the fact that Sabine is in the, you know, the pink armor but they love that you know i mean they love the fact that she she looks like a girl and she's still doing all this other cool stuff i'm telling you sabine is going to be the one who oversees the disney fireworks display at star wars weekend it's going to be sabine's fireworks beautiful fireworks spectacular because and i'm i'm you know i'm all about the pink i'm just if I I think if somebody wants like pink, they can. If they want to hate pink, they can't. But when I saw a pink Mando, I was like, oh wow, we've we've come a long yeah, way. Yeah. So I, I wish we were further. Uh, <laughs> you know, as I said, I was riding Bechtel pa- test passing Vic twenty years ago. So you know, why are we why are we still having these conversations? But um, I was really happy to see Hera and Sabine on their own adventure, where they didn't talk about boys once. <laughs> do your do your nieces um have they watched Legend of Korra yet? Um no, they have not. Um so that's another one that I um a- a- am encouraging although I'm I'm trying to decide whether or not to turn them on to Peggy Carter. Oh well, yeah. I'm so excited for Peggy. I'm so excited too. Um Miss Marvel has tons of Star Wars references in the series. So and it's a very um, teenage girls, but the guys who created um, the Avatar world were very influenced by Star Wars. And as I was watching the episode two of season four, I realized that it was essentially Luke's journey to Dagobah is what I could, you know, when you can pick the mm-hmm. themes out of. So I was like, wow, this is just like Star Wars, but in a different universe with all these awesome female characters and, and guy characters. But anyway, so I always, I, I, my poor sister, I'm like, oh, here's the copy of Miss Marvel for the kids, and here's a copy of Cora. So they get, that's what they get from, from Aunt Trisha. Yeah, things like yeah. That. best aunt ever. Well, you know, you said that you used to hide your Star Wars books. Mm-hmm. I also did that in the beginning, too, because <laughs> I, I just, well, the way I, I found Star Wars books is um, a relative was like, I don't know, she likes Star Wars and she likes reading and here's a book that says Star Wars on it, I'll just give it to her. And it turned out to be like not the first book in the trilogy or duology or whatever it was of it. And I remember loving it but having no idea if anybody else was into that kind of thing. Yes. So it was like I'm You just felt so keep alone this over here. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the big so thing when alone. I found people online to talk about it. 
it was it was really exciting. You know, in the very first days of the internet, there was uh, I, I'm not sure of the context in which it arose, but there was a district court judge who wrote about the fact that the internet had become sort of the the Martin Luther, um, you know, text on the church door, and mm-hmm. the way in which people with an interest in fly fishing could find one another Mm -hmm. uh, without regard to geography. And it it was a very eloquent description of how the Internet allowed people to coalesce around interest rather than geography for the first time um, in a really meaningful way. And and that's exactly what so much of our experience has been, Kay, is is that you you think that you are the only person Mm -hmm. out there in the whole world who who has this interest and then you find out that in fact no there there are lots of you and they're just like you yeah. uh you know the, the people who who came to it you know through through different methods and in my case you know i you know have now found lots of women who first experienced it in 1977 but others have other you know points of entry you know with phantom menace or with the books or with rebels or with um you know the the Clone Wars. I mean, everybody's got a different entry into it, mm-hmm. um, but the internet allows us to find each other in a way that wasn't well, possible before. Kay and I talk a lot about merchandise, and we both feel it's very important because it's a way to, you know, they say girls weren't into Star Wars, but you wouldn't have known that because if you sold a Millennium Falcon that was categorized as a boys' toy sale, uh. if you wanted to wear a shirt. You, but really, before her universe, you had to buy a boy shirt, so yeah. it was categorized as a boys' sale. Um, Kay talked about the flip flops were in the boys' section. Uh, yeah, the and Star so, Wars flip flops for boys. I was like, good. Yeah. I'm pretty sure girls could fit their feet in there too. <laughs> oh, it's it's maddening, and you know, and I mean, who do they think is buying this stuff? Even if you yeah. aren't buying for girls, which we are, um, and buying for ourselves, uh, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> It's all those aunts and mothers who mm-hmm. are buying this stuff. So it it is – I do not understand that failure to tap into that market because I know my nieces would buy everything that their parents would let them. And just on like a short – just how the shirt becomes a shorthand, yesterday I was at the Olive Garden and the waitress walked up and I had a Star Wars shirt on and she goes – Dude, I love that shirt. I love Star Wars. And so she would never known. There's no way to know except you have the shirt on. And she, you know, and then she says, I dressed up as Princess Leia this year for Halloween. She tells me. So now she and I have a, we have a way to communicate. Um, and then I said, well, if you like my shirt, you're going to like my shoes even better. And I slipped out my little van sneakers with the new hope on them. And she was like, <gasps> you know, and. <laughs> So, you know, then she was my best waitress ever because oh, yeah. know, she was very excited that she could come and talk to me about other Star Wars stuff. But it was it's it, it's always interesting how um, I, I have the daddy's issue sweatshirt from her universe yeah. and I wear it and I will get random people all the time. I, if I wear that shirt, I will have at least one person make a comment about the shirt. Either they love it or they giggle. They were like, oh, that's so true, you know, because, you know, she has daddy issues. It's the weirdest thing. That shirt will get people to talk to me every time. I'm like, well, if I want to talk to people today and I, I'll just go walk around the mall because somebody will say something about and, that shirt. I have to say, anytime I wear a Star Wars shirt, someone will say something every <laughs> single time. Um, it's it's a universal 
I mean, it, it really is a universal invariant, and it, it's a common language um, and a common shared cultural experience. Um, you know, and and, and the, the failure of the marketing gods to understand that is just befuddling to me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think I, I, I think they'll fig. I think they're figuring it out. So I hope so. Hopefully. Because boy, Hopefully have enough. I I've got I've got money to spend. Yeah, <laughs> listening Disney yeah. marketing gods. <laughs> I have money to spend, and so do all of my friends, and their, you know, and the mothers and aunts, and we want to buy things for our uh, for our nieces and our daughters and their friends. There was an interesting dynamic I noticed when um, Rebels was first coming out. They have there's the Disney's really into their mommy blogs. They they have conventions for their mommy bloggers, they're, and they're not they're mo- mommy bloggers who write about Disney. They aren't mm-hmm. like beholden to Disney and they certainly aren't because they're, you know, looking out for their kids. But, you know, people are like, well, I can't believe they're getting to see an early preview of Rebels before us. And I'm like, well, who's who? That was the conversation Star Wars fans. I'm like, well, who's us? Like, uh, (laughs) why can't, you know, it was just a sort of like, well, why are they getting to see it? You know, because, you know, and then it was so funny to see all these women who were moms who remembered Star Wars, had liked it, maybe weren't as passionate about it, but obviously Disney was showing it to them because their kids were going to buy they're the Rebels gate- stuff. They're, they're the gatekeepers. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. They're the gatekeepers. So I thought, oh, Disney's pretty smart. If you're going to show Rebels to somebody, I would show it to the moms mm-hmm. too and get them sold on it. So they're, if you... If you like, I mean, they have whole conventions for these mommy bloggers that they bring them to. They bring them to them. They don't <laughs> go like these moms don't pay to go to it. They bring them there and show them what they're working on. So I, I'm thinking I'm, I have high hopes for but Disney. But at the same time, isn't it like I just based on the Rebels products I've seen and we've talked before about the whole issue of Hera and Sabine without her helmet on appearing on these things that like you present to a room full of moms. And be like, and here's our merchandise. There are no women <laughs> on it. Sorry about that. I don't think, I, they, I, show, I don't think they showed them that part. Yeah, it, it makes me nuts. It really does. And, you know, the first launch in the Disney store was just infuriating. Because it was yeah. uh, all of the, the Star Wars merchandise was in the boys' section. And there was nothing in the girls'. Well, the I, I fact think, that you've got a boys and a girls is a problem enough. Yeah. But then they yeah. put all of the Star Wars stuff in the boys. And the princess is all with the girls. Well, BJ, who is our, our one of our other um, uh, hosts on Hyperspace Series, his son is 10 now, and he got the Lego ghost set. Oh, and yeah, he, I had my eye on that one. Yeah, kids are smart. He said, Dad, why isn't there Sabine in this one? Yeah. Like, he, you know, so kids are pretty, they're pretty observant. So, you know, I'm hoping that, that, you know, you see all these little girls that like go into the merchandise aisle and they they decide to do their little you know articles or letters to Lego or whoever. So, um, well, and, kids may change the world for us. Yeah, and, and that brings <laughs> us back to, to the um, to things like Athena's daughters and you know two characters like Sabine and Hera, and you know that representation really matters. And I uh, every time I think that you know. Uh, Every time I, I might forget that, I then spend time with young girls, and mm-hmm. I realize that it does matter a lot. Um, it's really important to them to see themselves and to mm-hmm. see people like them, um, and it's really important to their parents 
who want their daughters to have something other than an exposure to romance and crushes and clothes. I mean, that's that's a part of it, too, is that they they are desperate to find entertainment for their for their girls that is of the same qualitative, uh, you know, that is of the same quality as what's available for their boys. Absolutely. And, and that, that's and I will. And the money starts to flow that way. I've I've realized that, you know, one of the ways you have to speak to larger um, franchises with your pocketbook. So I only support things that now, especially from Star Wars, that really um, go towards the things that I would like to see out of them. And, and that's how I stay. I've, I've held firm on that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I guess I'm a, I'm a, I won't say I'm a bitter old fangirl. I'm a jaded old fangirl at this point, <laughs> a, a J-O-F-Q. And, um, I I've reached the point where if a piece of entertainment is not representative, I just don't even bother with it. I, I mean, th- yeah. there are some major shows, including some of those that own, you know, produced by those powers that own Star Wars, where I I look at the casting and I I don't even I, I won't even click on it. I'm I'm done. I won't even go there because I'm sick of it. I you know at, at my age I have you know, only a limited amount of bandwidth and lots of things competing for it. (laughs) And if something isn't going to show me, you know, something other than what I have been, you know, enduring for the last 50 years, I'm not going to bother with it. You know, I I want to see something else. I want to see something that looks more like the world that I live in. We still talk about, you know, they, people say, oh, you know, now with all the the, the trailer came out and you know, girls jumped the gun, you know, on uh-huh. the cast photo. And I said, well, <laughs> you know, it's really hard. You have to remember that there's been a lot of a lot of hope and not necessarily a lot of follow through for, you know, there, there are people who are speaking out who this isn't the first time where they said, oh, don't worry, don't worry. So, I, you know, I always I always say you have to remember where people are coming from in their history and um you know they just can see i they could see more and we still don't know whether we should be worried you know all we yes. have is the trailer yeah um yes. you know it it could still go south i hope it doesn't based upon the casting i'm optimistic although you know are they going to take uh you know i, I mean we have no idea what um kinds of roles are uh, available for um you know, the other women who've been cast. We have no idea. And the fact is, is that there was still that picture of the cast with, you know, two women and all those dudes. Yeah, you'll never be able to take that. And, that photo will it, always be part and, of story. And, and what does that say? <laughs> yes. You know, it's women need not bother. Okay, <laughs> fine. You know, you're not interested in me. Well, I'm not interested in you. I mean, I, I would hate to have to reach that with Star Wars, given that this is something that has been a, you know, a lifelong focus uh, uh ray kell who's a longtime club jade member says you know we're not obsessed we're focused uh, I, mean, <laughs> I, I think that's a fair yeah. one i could say I, i've done I've, I've 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 focused on how important jaina was and yeah. you know case talked yeah. about that for as growing up that was somebody she felt she could relate to um and those stories were very important to her because she could relate to them and um so, so i took more I think, offense than normal people if she yeah. appeared out of <laughs> yeah. character because i was like no that's that's me that's us don't do that to us 
Right. Exactly. Um, so on just a closing yes. note, why do you think, because obviously Mara Jade has been an important part of your Star Wars fandom. Oh, yes. Yes. Why, what, what made her so special? What made, what was the reason you had an affinity for her? You know, I talked to Tim about that a little bit at Origins because I had observed uh, that for uh, fangirls of a certain age, um, Mara really impacted a lot of people. I mean, even people who, who the only Star Wars books they ever read were the original Thrawn trilogy. Mara Jade continues to be a really important character. And so I, I talked with Tim about why I felt that was true. Um, because I, I thought he needed to know that, that she, she remains, even today. You know, how is it that she has endured for so long? And um, it, it's a... It, to try to be succinct over a very complicated character and a very complicated issue, uh, I would say that a key part of it is that Mara is a character of agency. She is her own agent. And when she realizes that she is being manipulated, that she has been manipulated, she takes control of herself. She takes control of her own destiny. And that's incredibly powerful when you think of all of the women characters in our fiction who do not have agency um so i i think although i wasn't aware of it at the time i I didn't have the the words to describe what she meant to me when i first read her that was a part of it um she also displayed certain characters that i admired immensely including um what we would now call the competence kink you know she she Mm -hmm. plays to the desire to see a character as competent um, and she is loyal, and she's loyal even when people don't uh, are, are don't reciprocate it. You know, when she's distrusted, still once it's given, it's given, and um, and that's a greatly admirable character a characteristic in her. Um, so those are the the things that I think have appealed to me, and I think appeal to others. Um, she's the agent in her own story. She has the tragic backstory, but then she doesn't allow it to define her. Um, well, I, I, love, I love that that's, it is one of the, you know, she, she had a kind of bad life, but she still just made it. She transcends it. She really does. Yes. And the, the growth that occurs in her character over the course of the Thrawn trilogy is is really important. Um, and so I, you know, it, it's funny back when the trilogy concluded and I read the last page of last command and I'm like, what? They didn't kiss. I'm so <laughs> um, and I was really angry. And then eventually, and I later told Tim this, you know, I was angry about that, Tim, but then I'd realized, you know, as, as he started to open his mouth to speak, it's like that was right for where they were, you know, in terms of the emotional development that they both that both Luke and Mara went through over the course of those books, that was the right ending for them at the right time. Um, and you know, for the the first ten years of of my focus on Luke and Mara, I was very concerned with getting them together. I have to say that now, as I'm a little bit older, um, that, that I'm very interested in Mara's backstory and in her her competency, her 
relationships, her associations, her work other than with Luke. Um, you know, and I, I think that it, it's not that I, you know, have any less of a romantic streak. I'm still a, a, you know, I still love my romances, but I'm very interested in her as a woman apart from her relationship with her husband, because um, there's a, a lot of ground to cover there, um, even with the ending that, you know, I still, I, it, you know, <laughs> in my head canon, it just didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, and that's the thing, and I've said it multiple times on my on my blog. Mara is Mara is actually the standard that Star Wars is going to have to live up yeah. to in going forward. That's what I believe. I, I think I think Princess Leia is is the kind of gold standard of establishing a character who was a lot of things, but I think Mara actually took the game up to a different level because we got inside her head and got to see more of who she was than we ever got to be with Princess Leia in the movies. Tim created um, an amazing character and she was so ill served so often. Um, <laughs> but, and I can't say that fandom has necessarily served her especially well either uh, because she, she's a, a really hard character to characterize, to, to get into, um, to explain. Um, and she's so much more than just her relationship with Luke. As much as I love that, that relationship and gosh, you know, I, I shipped that hard and I still do. Um, but there's so much more to her than just that single relationship. Um, yeah. So exactly. I, I agree with you completely, Trisha. I think she sets a really high bar and I, I hope that we see similar developments for the uh, women that will be coming to us in the new star Wars universe that unfolds. Well, great. So one last time, if you want to support the Kickstarter, it's Silence in the Library's Kickstarter. It'll be on our show notes, as always. And I tweet about it at Fangirl Cantina. And Kay, I'm sure, will tweet about it at Geek underscore Kay. And Tish, are you on social media? I am. Um, I, you know, I'm on Facebook under this name. And I also am on Twitter. Um, so I'll make sure you all have that link, although I, I don't tend to do a whole lot on that account. But no, I'm I'm there. Um, Great. So uh, please uh, support Athena's Daughters. There um, is amazing fiction. Just hearing the descriptions of the stories is so exciting. Um, and we're really excited to be able to share it with everyone. Great. Thanks for being on. Thank you so much.